As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. Hi. And today we're going to have another quick fire, attempted quick fire. We never actually end up being that quick, do they? Uh, look at some more questions that you guys, the listeners, have been sending in. Thanks for that. Before we kick off, a reminder, you can email us molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. Or if you're still on Twitter, slash X, you can tweet me there, at T-S-Y-A-T-T. T-S-W-Y-A-T-T. Uh, but Brandon... Uh, sent us an email from the east coast of the united states and he says this uh, i'm a 28 year old man christian man on the east coast of the u.s and i'm currently using dating apps that's not at all because i like them but but i feel like there aren't any good alternatives this is an area where i really feel like the church has failed especially here in the northeast where the churches are smaller and it's not necessarily very common to be a christian a lot of time is given to talking about marriage and parenthood, but I've yet to find a church that offers any kind of singles groups or events or ministry, and most of the churches have gender-segregated small groups too. So we're given a radically different sexual ethic and then left to live that out via methods and spaces and apps that have been created by the culture around us and with little to no guidance. I worry a lot about the effect of these apps when you look at hundreds or thousands of your brothers and sisters in Christ and make snap judgments about whether to swipe right or not. And it all happens in a space where we are explicitly not looking to truly get to know each other unless things really seem to be working out. We all know we came to these apps because there is one thing we want from each other. I don't think that is a healthy way for us to practice looking at each other. But in a church that sometimes feels like it has little to no interest in making the space and time to get to know each other and that neglect single people in general, what else is there to do? Hmm. I certainly resonate with a lot of that and in particular this idea that what uh, evangelical churches tend to do is they give a radically different sexual ethic and they promote a theoretically radically different sexual ethic but in terms of the actual working out of that in practice uh, they often fail in in providing a really positive and healthy environment in which single people can work that out that ethic Mm. yeah i think that that's a really perceptive way of describing the problem um that as you say churches hold up what is an increasingly countercultural way to live and then say go on then 
and everyone telling you to do this is already happily ensconced in a marriage with children and doesn't have to think about dating anymore and hasn't had to think about it for 10 to 20 years. And so if you are a, a younger single person, you're you're often left, I think, wondering, well, do you have any idea what it's like to go and find a, a brother or sister in Christ who shares that that countercultural sexual ethic and is looking for the same things I am? How on earth am I going to go and find this person and build a relationship with them to get to the end goal that you told me is what I'm supposed to be aiming for? It does feel a little bit like a bait and switch, you know, that you're almost set up to fail sometimes. Yeah, and, and of course... The fundamental issue is not at all new. Um, it, it, it it goes back hundreds of years, isn't it? How how if if I, I genuinely want to follow Christ, uh, I may be in a relatively small church. There aren't that many people of my age group. Uh, it seems unlikely that I'm going to by chance meet someone uh, who is going to be as suitable as a as a kind of partner. Uh, so, so what am I supposed to do? And uh, it's interesting that in the bad old days when I was growing up, it was uh, basically Christian organisations like camps and volunteering and uh, things you did over the summer and CUs. And uh, it was Christian organisations which basically provided a... Um, an environment in which you could meet people who cared about the same things that you did hmm. and where you were most likely to find somebody who, who shared your vision of life and your concerns and who you would feel here's someone who could be a life partner for me. I'm just reminded of a, a slightly cruel joke that was common currency when I was a teenager uh, here in central London, uh, a lot of people would sometimes go in addition to their kind of normal smallest church to to HDB, Holy Trinity Brompton, on kind of evening services, ostensibly to kind of, you know, soak up a different style of worship. And this is like, you know, one of the, by British standards, a mega church with approaching a thousand people coming on a Sunday. And, uh, but often it was really about meeting other young Christians outside of your own pool, so much so that people used to joke that HDB really stood for Hunt the Bride. <laughs> In fact, there were many jokes like that. So I remember the previous organisation which with the initial CSSM, and that stood for Come Single, Soon Married. <laughs> yeah, so as, as you say, in some sense, this is a common conversation topic among young Christians, um, and where in times gone by, it was quote-unquote solved by creating lots of ministry opportunities for young people to mingle uh, you know, whether that might be a summer camp or a gap year project overseas or or a kind of joint, you know, all, all town kind of Christian mission where lots of churches collaborate. So tell us, Tim, how did you find your <laughs> life partner? Uh, I, I, I met Jess at um, the Christian Union at university. <laughs> and I met my wife at uh, the student uh, events in my church. There you go. So, so it works. <laughs> It can work, but I but I understand. I sympathise that there is. It often feels like, at least looking around my circle of friends, there's kind of a wave of relationships that start, including mine, in your early twenties, while you're involved in church or Christian unions or summer camps or some other kind of parachurch organisation. But if you're 28, like our question, a question of Brandon is, 
I, I know I've spoken to friends who feel like if you miss that wave of people hooking up and settling down and getting married by the time they're 24, 25, 26, you've, you might have if often sometimes people feel like they've exhausted their own kind of social circle of church and parachurch friends, everyone who's potentially has already got married. And so you have to start looking further afield. And in that instance, I don't blame people for going to apps, whether they're Christian apps or, or not, because fundamentally that is how people meet each other. If you're, if you're, if you look, you know, as Brandon says, you know, there's, we're all came to these apps for the same thing, looking for one thing, and that can be unhealthy, but at least it gives a clarity, you know, where you're not just like rocking up in a bar and just trying to spot the kind of WWJD bracelet. But if you're on <laughs> Salt, you know, the app that we referred to last time, you are fully aware that everyone here is a Christian of some description, and everyone here is looking for a husband or a wife. But that's part of the issue, isn't it? Um... Because I understand that it just if you just take it outside of the Christian world and just look at secular culture as a, whole, as a whole, I understand that dating apps are absolutely dominant in terms of finding someone uh, to hook up with. And, and the reason is that there's such anxiety, particularly on campus, that you will be misinterpreted, even inviting a girl or a, a bloke to have a drink or, or to do something else together could be interpreted as abusive, manipulative, patriarchal, you know, you name it. So the one thing you know on the dating app is, as you say, everyone is there for one reason only. And so you don't have to worry that by swiping right, you could be accused of... <laughs> of, of microaggression. Exactly, exactly. No, I think quite genuinely. So, so it's, a, it's a bizarre thing that, that the, the normal interactions, whereas, you know, again, in the bad old days, you know, inviting someone, would you like to come for a meal, come for a drink? You know, do you want to go and see a film? You know, this was just completely routine, normal. And she can always say, no, push off. I'm not interested. But, but uh, it's become, it seems to have become much more complex and, and challenging just to do that ordinary social thing yeah. of expressing interest in someone else. And it's out of that context that you saw things like the kind of courtship movement, which was not never particularly big in among evangelicals on this side of the Atlantic, but, you know, dating from kind of Josh Harris's seminal book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, this whole idea of a kind of, there's a radically different way to do dating. This predates the apps, but it's the idea that Christians don't date by in the way that normal people do by, you know, becoming friends with a girl, asking her out on a date, going for a dinner, going to the cinema, getting to know each other. But actually it should all be done kind of hyper-intentionally and through the the kind of under the protective aegises of your, if you're a woman, of your dad. And so it's this kind of pre-industrialization uh, world where where you, you court with your father as there as a chaperone kind of in the family home. And it's it's all a bit, weird and creepy but um that was right that was quite influential and quite popular as a, as a way of of kind of solving that riddle which i guess is kind of nudging back towards inching back towards kind of arranged marriages which would have well, been the norm for christians for hundreds if not thousands of years well that's what i was going to say i was i was going to say that actually isn't this part of the the fruit of this bizarre thing called uh non-arranged marriages you know that that in all previous cultures, um, marriage was arranged. It wasn't usually the dad; it was usually the mum. 
<laughs> I mean, mothers were much more likely to be the matchmakers. But often in, in many cultures, there were official matchmakers, weren't there? There were, mm. uh, there were people who, um, who were responsible to, it was their job to know who was around, who was available and who might get along with one another. And I remember a very interesting conversation with a colleague of mine at work and we we got on talking in one of those intermissions between uh, in the working where you're just chatting together and he said he his marriage was arranged his parents had arranged for him to meet his his future wife and 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 he talked about it very positively you know he he said that uh trusting their judgment uh he felt they were much more likely to end up you know they want they genuinely want to do the best for their son and they were much more likely to find someone who matched interests and whose personality and and thought they would get on well and that actually it 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 set the place in which love could grow so it's not that there wasn't love there but it wasn't that we fell in love got this amazing chemistry and then wanted to live together it was that we were chosen to live together and then love would love would grow out of that so isn't part of the problem this this sort of over idealized romanticized view that you're looking for the right person the person who all the chemistry is going to person is going to transform my life and you know all the bells are going to ring and I'm just going to know they're the right one and then we just we have to be we fall in love together that, that isn't a biblical model at all is it Mm, mm, no it's not and i think there's certainly something i would agree with there about kind of almost a fetishization of marriage or the idol idolatry of marriage which you see i think which is largely a kind of hollywood thing but is kind of bled unquestioned into church culture and i think there's certainly something where we should maybe slightly push back and say like yeah it's really important that you and your wife or husband are attracted to each other and they have lots in common and are good friends but actually you know there's no there's no evidence that there is the one and you don't need to wait for literal lightning to strike and actually if you find someone for whom you share important values you're attracted to them they're attracted to you like you that can be that as you say the foundation to build a really lifelong happy marriage even if it's not like from day one, you can't take your hands off each other or whatever. So I definitely think we can maybe kind of turn the temperature down on some of the kind of romanticization of marriage. But I think equally, there is a, a misleading kind of dewy eye look back at the past at how wonderful the era of arranged marriages were, which I think there have been lots of arranged marriages that have been very successful, but there've also been tons that were, being, that were awful because it fundamentally says you and and the the most important human relationship that you're going to have over the next 70 years is something that can be controlled by your parents fundamentally or your community and that is just rife for abuse and for power plays and transactionalism and actually while it's true that the kind of idea of marrying for love is a relatively recent historical concept i would argue put aside the love marrying out of free will is a fundamental Christian concept. I don't believe you see in the Bible God's endorsement for the idea that people should be forced to marry against their will. Yeah, And that's both whether to marry at all or stay single, but also who, I believe that also pertains to who you marry. Yeah, And actually, I think there's something important about the 
the generous, freely given love that God gives us, that we're supposed to be modeling in our marriages, the, the love that God has for us, the love that Christ has for the church. And that is not coerced, enforced, expected upon, um, even by kind of loving parents, it's freely chosen. And so I think I would push back and say, actually, there is something beautiful and deeply Christian about the idea of saying, I choose who to offer my sacrificial, submitting, covenant love to, not someone I'm told to. Yeah, yeah. I, I, but I, I think that's a bit of a caricature because Christian marriage, right from its very um, inception, has always been seen as freely given consent. I mean, that's the difference between rape, put it crudely, and consensual relationships, isn't it? That, that, that marriage is never coerced. There is always the freely given consent. And, you know, that's why it's so significant, I think, when, you know, the angel appears to Mary and gives her this amazing news and says, well, whether you like it or not, Mary, that's what's going to happen. Uh, it isn't like that. Mary says, you know, I am the bond slave of the Lord. Let it be to me, as you have said. In other words, I give my consent. I agree. Yeah. And 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 that's a critical thing in every, every Christian marriage service is, do you agree? Do you take this person, this man, this woman? And, and you have to say, I agree. I give my consent. But we have to, un you're absolutely right, that has always been baked into the theology of it, but we need to be realistic and clear-eyed that in many, many times in many Christian cultures, women in particular, daughters, have been Coerced. told who they're going to marry, yeah. and they might have said in the front of church, I agree, but in reality they had no real free will because of the overweening patriarchal power of the father or the community or the priest in that context. Well, and actually, for better or for worse as we've dismantled kind of arranged marriages, we have also dismantled the the likelihood of particularly women being, you know, giving technical consent, but in reality being knowing very well that, that she doesn't really have a choice. And if she says no, there's going to be serious negative consequences for her. Yeah, unfortunately, abusive, coercive men are just as present <laughs> in the current era as they ever were. So I'm I'm sure, sadly, there are still women yes. being coerced into into marriage and into sex but um i you know i i, I think we agree that um there is something very positive about this genuine desire to to choose uh, i and i think it's the transactional element you know it's the kind of cattle market mm. element of the dating app you know where each person you know all these thousands of people are presenting their best side. They're, they're, they're saying, you know, how can I present myself, which would be attractive to a mate, you know, that, I, that I've got a good sense of humour, that I, I'm adaptable and approachable. I care and about friendly. my appearance, but not too much. <laughs> yeah, I love music, you know. I mean... <laughs> GSOH. GSOH. You know, for a long time, when I read those... those um, those Lonely Hearts adverts. I kept seeing these initials, GSOH. I didn't have a clue what it stood for. <laughs> and I came to the conclusion it probably stood for good skin, own hair. <laughs> <laughs> Very important things to identify in a mate, of course. Um, yeah, I think I would agree that, that, and Brandon puts his finger on in the question that actually 
ex- asking you to say saying here are a hundred pictures and you know 30 word maximum pro text profiles of of a hundred of my sisters in christ and i am encouraged or expected to be able to with a flick of my finger decide who is a possible mate and who is not i think that is deeply unhealthy and maybe i'd go as far as to say unchristian way of trying to find a wife my pushback would be uh, my, my take is i don't think dating apps are intrinsically bad i just think that we need to use them with great care to to be and be aware of of how they might be forming and shaping our perceptions and our judgments and our culture and attitude to this process but if you're simply saying this is a new form of technology that helps me to meet other female Christians who are single and to therefore hopefully meet them in the flesh after we've got to know each other on the app and do it the old fashioned way of seeing is there chemistry? Do we like each other? Do we share important values? Can we see ourselves as a, as a couple? I don't think that's in itself bad. I just think we need to be really, really careful about um, not letting ourselves fall into that kind of cattle market approach and that incredibly superficial, judgmental, skin deep approach of who is a possibility and who is not. Yeah, I, I would just want to take a slightly different take or add to that, which I basically agree. And that is that the problem is that the church is bought into this complete sexual romantic obsession as the same of the secular age. And that a very important part of this is to try to help young single people see the importance of building non-sexual friendships deep intimate self-giving christ-centered friendships um and and that maybe it's more important to be building those kind of friendships as a young single person than Mm. it is to be spending all the time in the cattle market trying to find a romantic partner because we've devalued the importance of of non-sexual friendship so i mean it just so happens that i've written a book about this but it is something that i think it is is really important that the, the extent to which un, unintentionally the uh, modern church seems to have bought into the sexual obsession of our sexual secular age it's interesting you mentioned that because I was going to say, you know, Brandon says that the church has little or no interest in in making space for single people to get to know each other. And, and I'm thinking, you know, yeah, that's true. And maybe churches should do more kind of single nights. And, you know, I'm, I'm aware of at least one of the Christ, big Christian summer festivals here in the UK that for many years has had a speed dating night built into the schedule. And I know people, I know a married couple who first met on the speed dating night at New Wine and you know, on one level, it feels a bit absurd that, you know, you've come away with your church family for a week camping to do some worship and Bible teaching and in between do a bit of dating. But maybe I, I was thinking, you know, actually, maybe that's no bad thing that, that helps young single Christians get to know each other and to 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 not be kind of tempted, as it were, to 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 settle for second best and find someone who doesn't share your values and your love of Jesus. But then the flip side is if churches are constantly running singles nights they are buying into that thing you just said which is that you're incomplete until you're married and so we have to put loads of time effort and money into making sure that all the single congregants in our parish are are married off rather than saying you're fine as you are singleness is an honorable vocation you may even be called to it for for lifelong are you are you impressing into that why not focus on life-giving friendships and and that kind of stuff so i I feel a bit conflicted on that one yeah and and just because you're single doesn't mean you're therefore locked out of intimacy you're locked out of deep soul sharing relationships that that's the myth you know the lie that the secular world says 
unless you've got someone who gives you all this sexual chemistry, your life is just a pale reflection of what might be. Mm. Whereas the idea that deep, you know, that people, what, what so many people are looking for is intimacy, that they're, they're looking for connection. And uh, instead of helping people to build those deep, deep friendships with both, with people of both the same and the opposite sex, um, that that's the priority rather than uh, trying to get everyone paired off. Hmm. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. To, to wrap up this episode, we want to have a, a brief chat about a really interesting, concerning news story that um, you spotted, Dad, uh, coming over from, from the US in their torturously slow-moving election process, which is underway. Um, there was a, a primary happening in New Hampshire, the first primary, I think, presidential primary. Um, but there, a, a bunch of people started getting robo-phone calls that appeared to sound like they were coming from Joe Biden's own voice, telling them that they should skip uh skip voting in the primary did you see that story yeah um so this is something which has been predicted actually for quite a long time you know the the basic technology for uh, doing deep fakes including audio deep fakes um has been around for some time but people have predicted that you know what is this going to do in elections and lo and behold it's actually happened so using one of these generative AI models, you actually only need a relatively short amount of audio, of genuine audio from the person you're trying to, uh, trying to imitate and simulate. And then you feed that into the, uh, into the model. And then you can type whatever you like and it comes out in the voice that you want it to. Mm-hmm. And so voters in New Hampshire were rather surprised to receive a telephone call and to hear Joe Biden on the end. And they were even more surprised when he was telling them to not to vote for the primaries, but to save their ballot for the general election in November. And, and I think thousands of people got this call and it seemed very personalised. It was, you know, they'd been selected because they were particularly likely to vote. Mm. Uh, and it's um, 
an investigation has quite quickly kind of traced it to a couple of Texas companies, apparently, which have been were involved in, in setting up the Robo calls. But I guess it, and, and I think the U.S. Um, federal authorities have now uh, made it illegal to do Robo calls that use AI generated voices. Um, do you think this is going to come happen? Start happening more and more as the technology, the, the kind of bar to entry to doing this kind of sophisticated AI impersonation is lower and lower. You know, but we'll we'll have videos of Rishi Sunak appearing to say things that he's never said for our election later this year, and that kind of thing. I do. I, I think you know. Sadly, um, it seems impossible to put the genie back in the bottle. You know, these these uh, programs are widely available, uh, freely downloadable, and it doesn't take a lot of technical skill to create deepfake video or audio. And it's 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 really concerning to see where this is going. I, I I think it just leads to a general attitude of mistrust. Um, how much impact this is going to have on elections, nobody really knows. But in other areas, so the most extraordinary thing I read just uh, just a few days ago was somebody who worked for a big company uh, receives a rather strange email asking him to join a Zoom call to discuss um, a transaction, a financial transaction for the company. He thinks it's a bit strange, but he comes on the Zoom call and there apparently on the Zoom call are senior members of the um, of the company, executives who he recognises and who are all agreeing that he should do this transaction. So he agrees and transfers a whole lot of the company's money into another account. And it then turns out that every single one on, person on that Zoom call were deep fakes. They were not the genuine people. So you can see the power, can't you? If it's possible, you know, to create such accurate, carefully crafted uh, deep fakes, who can you trust? Even when this seems to be somebody I know and is, is uh, and I recognise them. Hmm. You know, if I had to guess, what this leads to is a kind of entire total collapse of of um, kind of useful information sharing online. You know, it, because if as is already happening on some social media networks, if if what if everything if eighty even fifty percent of what you're seeing is known to be spurious and disinformation, then people will just understandably conclude nothing is true on the internet. Which is, you know, helpful in one sense in that they're less likely to be misled. But I just think it has catastrophic effects for the discourse and for the quality of our democracy and our debate, let alone for people working in the media, such as myself. If a whole generation grows up basically believing that everything you read on the internet is fake and untrue, um, because they can no longer distinguish between AI-generated misinformation and, and legitimate media, you actually end up in this kind of backwards you lose the benefits of the last kind of 500 years since the printing press of all that advantages in communication and all the benefits it's brought to us. And we just end up, you know, talking with our directly with our friends and our families. And we don't have this kind of participatory complex million strong democracy that relies on clear communication and trustworthy communication. Yeah. And, and you can certainly, I mean, that's the worst case scenario, isn't it? Sort of dystopic, view i i don't think it has to be like that in the end you know what it what it it shows is that is that the very close relationship between our understanding of truth and who you trust you know and and to put it in simplistic terms what is true 
is what a person who I trust tells me. In the end, uh, truth cannot, it's not an objective scientific uh, neutral thing. It is actually truth ultimately at its heart is comes from people who are trusted. So positively, I think it would be possible to rebuild from the ground outwards some kind of trusted technology. There are there are technological um, possible ways of doing this. I mean, we still trust, by and large, a bank to put a, you know, use our credit cards and put our money there. Mm. Uh, they have very sophisticated counterfeit detection methods, and uh, they're not foolproof, but most of the time they work. Mm. So that there are kind of technical ways of of uh, it just means, yeah, I think we have to be much more cautious and we have to look to build up again a, a, a network of trust. And, and who do I trust? I mean, you know, we talked before about Substack, didn't we? And that's one of the interesting things in Substack. You know, I find an individual who I trust. Mm. And and provided they're continuing, of course, they could be hacked and they could be saying something completely false. But by and large, you know, the motivation to hack a small substack is is less, isn't it? And and I finding someone who I trust, and they're speaking with some kind of authentic voice. I don't trust them a hundred percent, but I trust them ninety five percent that this is probably straight, and and I'm interested and want to listen and learn from them. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's the first kind of inklings of a shift in the kind of social graph of the net and we maybe we're coming out of the era of kind of like full octane firehose social media where every absolutely everything was mediated online in this huge pool and maybe things are starting to fracture down you know you're seeing new social networks emerge and some of the older ones kind of lose some of their cultural dominance uh, and maybe that's a healthier thing to have a more fragmented landscape where we have smaller pools and and um more peer-to-peer stuff rather than it all be mediated through the Facebook feed or the Instagram algorithm or whatever it is. And we can start to rebuild trust. I was just reminded when you're talking about technological solutions, you know, the conversation 20 years ago was, you know, is spam going to destroy email? And then, you know, the companies applied their brains and their computing power to it and basically largely fixed the problem of spam Hmm. in that, you know, every day I do receive a spam or email or two, but Gmail is 99.9% accurate Hmm. at filtering out of my inbox. And so I don't notice and, I can still trust the bulk of the emails that arrive in my inbox while always having to apply a degree of kind of scrutiny to the ones that ask me to send money somewhere or or appear to come from a bank. But so, yeah, hopefully yeah. we can come up with something similar for deep fakes and for AI and all this stuff that is never going to be 100%, but at least keeps us ahead in the kind of endless arms race. Yeah, another example is it was, it was widely said that sort of um, counterfeit music um you know illegal copying was going to destroy the entire music industry and there wasn't going to be any solution to it but lo and behold again technical solutions were found and most people are perfectly happy to use legitimate sites like spotify yeah and and so on so i i think there's probably not a reason for doom and gloom but i do think that democracy and elections are under particular attack Mm. because i suppose if you think about it when it comes to an election this kind of small group peer-to-peer stuff Mm. is much less uh helpful isn't it i mean in the end we do need to know what's happening at a national level 
and this is a little superior, so forgive me, but part of it is really because Americans have allowed their elections to become such enormous kind of money-guzzling multi-year monstrosities where there are super PACs with hundreds of millions of dollars to spend on behalf of candidates. You know, there is obviously people do attempt to manipulate UK elections, but it's on such a smaller scale because we have regulated and, and kept them smaller and and less kind of bloated by money and special interests um and frankly it's it's also a consequence of an incredibly divided and divisive society you know yeah. and i think a large part of the solution again for america is finding ways to heal the polarization between democrats and republicans and then there is just frankly less of a market for it and less interest in bad actors trying to sow dissension mm. um when people are broadly more committed to the kind of democratic idea that we're playing on a level playing field we have different ideas but we're all fundamentally americans trying to do the right thing yeah i I think there's a lot in that right shall we call it quits uh thanks very much everyone for listening and thank you to everyone who keeps sending in questions we'll try to get to some more of those in an episode in a few weeks time um you can email molad m-o-l-a-d at premiere.org.uk um, and as always, there's lots more resources of things to stimulate your thinking at johnwyatt.com. But we'll see you uh, next week for another episode. Bye bye. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier.